the business runs on the sisterhood more than anything. Whether you're a professional dancer or just started falling in love with ballet dance, welcome to the Ballet Dance Live podcast. Here, we are diving deep into all facets of ballet dance world that cannot be found in a workshop or an audience seat. Every week, you will find new, honest, thought-provoking, inspiring, and educational conversation with top leading professionals of our industry. I'm your host, Jana Komornitska, and I am honored that you are part of our dance tribe. What stops you from practicing more at home? Typically, it's uh, time, space, money, low motivation, or maybe frustration with what exactly to do. How about solving all this with Yana Dance Club? Don't have time? Each practice drill is only 20 minutes long. It's a complete workout with a special focus on different technique element. And even if you do the suggested bare minimum, you still will see results and it won't take you more than 20 minutes per session. Have limited space? All drills are actually designed for practice in your home, so it's literally a no-brainer. Struggle with motivation and discipline? How about making your training fun with monthly challenges, cool bonuses and support from a like-minded community of dancers? I promise you'll start looking forward to your practices very soon. Concerned about money? Did you know that the membership starts with only $8 per month? It's less than a regular group class in your local studio all the cost of two Starbucks coffees. But in this case, you actually invest those $8 in a whole month of your dance training. And finally, no more frustration on how exactly to approach your training at home and what to do. You can use those drills as a warm-up or to get into a groove before your longer individual sessions or actually as a complete 20-minute ballet dance workout of the day. Simply follow the suggested plan for your weekly training and push your dance skills to the next level. You can find more information about Yana Dance Club at yanadanceclub.com and start your 7-day free trial today. Once again, visit yanadanceclub.com for more information and to start your weekly ballet dance training today. Hello everyone, how are you doing? What an amazing treat uh, we are having today. Get ready for super inspiring uh, story, a dance story, a career story, a research story from amazing Amaya. She had performed in over 21 countries and I just should say that her uh, one of the major awards and competition awards in Cairo, in Egypt, happened in 1978. Yeah, you can imagine how how incredible and long career we are talking about, and it's so inspiring that to see that our Belladons community joins together generations, different generations of dancers who are actively participating in the dance and dance development. And Amai is definitely such an inspiring example of such activities, not only by being a teacher and mentor herself for other people, but also working on documenting the history of ballet dance around the world and specifically right now we are talking about history of ballet dance development in America through her work. She's the author of several 
uh, documentaries, which we are going to talk during this interview. But also, I want to let you know that her latest work, the documentary American Ballet Dance Icons, that we are uh, talking also in this interview about, it's already released. It's literally happened within these few days between our uh, recording date and uh, the date that I'm releasing, publishing this interview. It just happened. So you can already go to her website. I'll include the link in the show notes and check it out but of course along with uh, talking about her projects and documentary we of course focused a lot on talking just about her dance path and it was a very entitled and very inspiring a story of uh, tapping into some uh, fusion work uh, years and years ago then it was not that much popular uh, back in those times and uh, Amaya was one of the first, if not the first one, to introduce the passion of flamenco mixed with sensuality of Arabic dance. And you probably are familiar with the famous song Amaguena, composed specifically for her by top composer Ibrahim El Samahe. So also, uh, she had an interesting uh, dance career and journey by collaborating with a male uh, dancer partner. And uh, that was very interesting for me because ballet dance is considered as a solo, female solo dance. But here is such an interesting, unusual example of a duet that was uh, so successful and creative in their uh, dance uh, explorations that also of course we touched on and i just should say that uh, this interview felt for me so short i was like oh my god it's already over an hour we are talking and there is so little that we actually talked about because amaya definitely has such a rich and uh, varied uh, career and her achievements uh, they just uh, countless. <laughs> uh, she has several lifetime awards from different organizations. She has uh, was featured in so many uh, movies, magazines. Uh, she's organizer of several important events and also we also touched in this conversation about her decision to stop doing a big festival and uh, switch it and to transform it into a completely different uh, kind of event by its feel and by its atmosphere. So I'm pretty sure that for many of you who are thinking about organizing events or maybe are actively organizing events, that would be also insightful. And uh, it just uh, brings me so joy that almost any of our conversations and we are talking about uh, um, some dance uh, changes or some dance suggestions, uh, most of our guests First of all, bringing attention to listen to ourselves and listen to what actually fulfills you. What are your goals at first place? Why did you even get into this uh, uh, dance or in this uh, project? If you're talking specifically about festival or whichever other projects you're working on. And more and more guests, I keep hearing that they kind of refer back like, go back to yourself, ask yourself again, what's your main goals, and then align your project and work that you actually still on track with your original goals and dreams. So this interview is really full of so many treasures and inspiring moments that I just want very quickly to introduce you to our amazing guest. And let's dive in to our today's episode. But before that, I also want to let you know about 
uh, one important project that is also very inspiring and I'm absolutely sure uh, will interest you. Jelena's beauty empower is actively engaged in sharing the art of ballet dance with dancers of all ages, backgrounds and abilities. Through youth scholarship programs, weekly dance classes and engagement activities while on tour, Jelena and her team connect with at-risk young women and young dancers around the world. To learn more about the BD Empower project, visit BalladanceEvolution.com or follow hashtag BD Empower. Link in the show notes. Hello there, Maya. Welcome to the podcast. And I feel uh, me and our listeners for sure will absolutely enjoy this uh, next uh, uh, whatever minutes hour <laughs> we're going to talk. And thank you so much for uh, joining us today. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me. This is really exciting for me, too. I love talking about myself <laughs> and my project. So thank you for calling me about this. Great. Well, I would love to start our conversation actually talking about you first before your project. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, okay. I know that uh, dance and music is almost like it's it's in your genes <laughs> and mm -hmm. in your blood. Uh, can you please tell us a little bit more about um, how everything started for you dance-wise? Well, you know, I was... Um uh, actually a very poor child. So I always liked music and dance, but I never was able to take dance classes or anything like that because in, in our family, food was more important than dance class. So I was um, sort of uh, trained, what I say, organically. I, was I danced, you know, with, um, you know, modern rock and roll, Elvis Presley, you know, Beatles kind of music. So I, I was always on top of those latest dances, but I never had formal training. And then um, it was in the back of my mind, my dream, my fantasy would be to travel the world and to dance. But I knew it was just a fantasy because, um, you know, to be a real dancer takes a lot of work and a lot of money and a lot of training. And I didn't have any of that. But um, I, I got into, you know, Middle Eastern dance Oh, when I was in my late 20s, because I saw a dancer here in New Mexico performing. And what I liked about it was, in fact, what you said, the music. The music was the best part of it all. But also that you didn't need a dance partner. And that you all you seemed to be just needing to be flexible and interpret the music. And I could do that. I was very flexible. And um, I, I didn't have a dance partner or a husband or a boyfriend that liked to dance. So this was perfect for me. So I started as a hobby. You know, I just started taking some classes and, um, you know, twice a week for like three years. And I went crazy. I, I wanted to eat, live and breathe, you know, Middle Eastern dance. It was like the ultimate thing. I didn't want to do anything else. <laughs> but um, it sort of just grew from there. I mean, I, I never planned anything. It just took step by step when one thing led to another. But if I could say that I, I was going to make this my my life profession, I, I would have laughed at, it, at you because I just didn't think that was a possibility. You know, I never lived in New York City. You know, I never was in the middle of, you know, that kind of culture. And um, and yet it came to me anyway, in spite of all these these roadblocks, it came anyway. And so I say to anybody that's interested in dancing, just do it. Don't overthink it. Because <laughs> sometimes, you know, serendipity takes over and there you are in the middle of a huge dance show 
and you're the star, which is a big surprise. But, you know, in a nutshell, that's sort of how it happened to me. I didn't plan it. And I look back, looking back on it, I'm really glad I didn't plan it because I might not have um, continued because what somebody else might think as a setback, maybe you didn't get a job, a dance job you wanted. I just sort of shrugged my shoulders and thought, well, it wasn't meant to be. And, you know, maybe I'll go and, um, you know, go see a movie or read a book or do something else. <laughs> and I didn't take it too seriously. <laughs> Wow, it's mm-hmm. very yeah. unexpected beginning of such a such a yeah, uh, rich <laughs> dance career. Actually, it's very uh, funny uh, for me right now to to notice that uh, when you uh, talking about the time that you just saw ballet dance, one of the thoughts for you was, "Oh, I don't even need a partner for this dance style." Mm-hmm. Because throughout your career, you actually had some long term collaborations that you were performing right. with a partner. <laughs> Ah, thank you for knowing all about that. Yes, yes, yes. I, I started dancing, you know, as, as, as like all of us, as a solo act. And then, um, but I still wasn't a very uh, well-known person. I was still sort of flapping my wings a little bit. And I was taking a workshop from Bert Balladine. And, um, you know, one thing led to another. We be, we became friends. and um, And he liked me because we heard the music the same. And he, um, he, we were both the same coloring. We looked like a couple. You know, he was not a very tall man and I wasn't a tall person. You know, he was dark, I was dark. So on stage, he, he was very showbiz. He was all about show business. He knew we looked really good together on stage. And thankfully, um, I could match his style of dancing, which was very improvisational. You know, he did not rehearse. <laughs> so, you know, it, he asked me to dance with him once and um i remember what what i even got paid i got paid 35 dollars and um and i was so honored and amazed and scared and nervous but um over the years we danced more and more together and so i was also a soloist and a partner with him and he he was so amazing to me he helped me with so much, with costuming, with the business of belly dance. He opened the doors in Europe for me. Um, you know, he was he was like my brother, I mean, my big brother that took care of me. And without him, I, my name wouldn't be so well known. It's so hard to um, become an established dancer in, in the world today because there's so many wonderful dancers out there. But um, if you don't have a mentor and some luck, you know, it's what it's very hard. It's very hard to become um, an established dancer and to rise to the top, um, in, in even with the help of social media. But Bert Balladine was was a feather in my cap, and he was just um, the ultimate dance friend. Yeah, so I ended up having a partner. You're right. You know, I never even thought about that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but it, it also sounds like uh, he was already uh, very like into the uh, dance scene. Was he before performing also like in the Arabic inspired uh, uh, dance acts, or was it something else? And then you inspired him to do some improvisation oh, uh, performances mm-hmm. in the style. <laughs> No, no, no. He was already very famous when I met him. He was international, not just national. But oh. he, he had been dancing and performing since he was like seven years old. He, he was in the circus. He was in ballet. He was in movies in, in Spain. He um, did adagio work. He did flamenco work. 
and then um, he moved to the United States and um, he got into teaching uh, Middle Eastern dance to, to women, especially, I would say, he taught them um, about the psychology of the dance. There's many teachers out there that will teach you steps, but he was more into the, the spiritual feeling of it, how, you know, how to promote uh, sadness or happiness or energy on stage. He was excellent, excellent at that. But he was, you know, he was a professional in all areas of show business. So he was already dancing with other women. <laughs> Sounds like he was unfaithful. But he was dancing with other dancers before he met me. And um, they um, they didn't always work out for him because of, the, of um, different reasons, you know, coloring, um, attitude. Sometimes women would dance with him and then they would become stars and they would go off and be stars on their own. And um, he was... He Bert did not have a family, and so the dancers were his family. He was very loyal to his people, and um, he took relationships really very seriously, and so did I. I come from a Latino background and Hispanic family, and we we really, um, you know, um, we really value our our friendships and family and those relationships. So it wasn't all about show business with Bert and I, which is why we worked so long and so well together. So yes, he, in answer, quick answer to your question, he'd had other, you know, other dancers. And that even uh, after he and I performed together, that did not mean that he could not perform with other people and vice versa. Um, for me, there were no other male dancers out there for me to perform with. And I, I enjoy being a soloist anyway. And the same for him, you know, he, he danced with other sponsors and other people that brought him into their cities for workshops. But our, um, our relationship, I think, was the longest. Mm. I just remember that I heard from someone very interesting opinion, uh, which is very subjective, but it kind of just reminded me right now your story that uh, male dancers as teachers and as mentors, they kind of can contribute more to students because there is no... Uh, this tension, they don't feel like uh, competitors to each other, which happens quite often among uh, female mm-hmm. ballet dancers. And right now, mm-hmm. in nowadays, it's uh, quite an issue. There is such an interesting contrast between such a support of ballet dance community towards each other, but at mm-hmm. the same time, such a contrast in competition between each other. And I'm really curious, um, in the times of when you... Uh, crossed or start crossing this line between uh, be, uh, from doing a dance just as a hobby, but going into professional life and start performing and trying mm-hmm. to find new opportunities in network. In how, in your experience, how was for you in general ballet dance community back where, uh, back then? Was it more supportive mm-hmm. or was it already <laughs> competitive a lot in the terms of professional establishing professional mm-hmm. career? <laughs> That's a, that's a great question. It really is. Um, you know, I've heard that. I read that on Facebook about the competition between dancers. And to tell you the truth, um, I don't know if it's my personality or my luck, but I don't see it. I have seen, uh, you know, a little bit of it, of course, because we're human beings. And um, But I, I don't think of it as a major problem. I think overall, the dance is very supportive to dancers and, and women in general. Women support women more often than the opposite. 
And of course, you're going to get that bad egg in there somewhere where somebody is, oh, um, competitive and stomping on everybody and trying to get to the top. But you know, th- those dancers don't last. You know, they, they if they just don't continue because it's it's more about uh, the sisterhood. If, for instance, I personally I like to dance. I'm a good dancer. I'm a nice looking woman. But part of the re- <clears throat> excuse me, part of the reason I'm so successful, I know, is because. I truly like people. I truly like women and I truly like the friendships I've developed. And this dance has done so much for me because I have all these dance friendships. You know, women that like me hire me. You know, we're friends. And so the, you know, Donna in Chicago will call me back to do another workshop because we want to get together and just have a good girlfriend talk. So it's the business runs on the sisterhood more than anything. Um, you know, just developing relationships along the way. So if I see a, a new dancer or a younger dancer, an inexperienced un, un, dancer, um, oh, being competitive or, you know, taking on a diva attitude, you know, I just sort of smile to myself because I know that they will not be around because sponsors and people that put on festivals, et cetera, we, they all talk. Everybody knows everybody in this business. And if you have a a bad attitude, you're not going to rise to the top. It just doesn't happen. Then the other thing is that the women and men um, that are at the top of our business, that are well-known names, gosh, 99.9% of those people are really balanced uh, together people. They're, um, they have a gracious attitude. They uh, appreciate what's being done for them, where they are. Most of them, I have to say most of them, I can't even, right now off the top of my head, I can't think of one person that is not gracious and um, just full of talent, highly intelligent, compassionate, um, good people. We're all in this wanting the same thing. We all want to be able to perform and be accepted, to be loved, to be told that we're, we have something special in our dance. Without exception, we all want the same thing. And um, I think once you rise to the top, the, the, the people that are um, well-known are, are very good people. I don't see them being competitive with each other because we all, ex- you know, I, I think once you get well-known and you've been in enough shows, you realize there's always somebody younger, prettier, thinner, more athletic, et cetera, than you. The only thing you've got to hang on to is to be to be you there's only one amaya and so i can't compare myself to anybody else because there's only one me and so what i do is i go back to my studio and i practice on being as most me as possible and compete with myself find out who i am what my message is and practice and put that out there not to be like um you know so suhaila salampur or Aziza from Canada or Sadie from Denver. I mean, they're wonderful, but uh, I, no matter how much I practice, I'll never be like them. I don't look like them. I don't feel the music like them. So that takes all the competition out of it. So true and so refreshing to hear because I know for many, uh, many uprising dancers, this topic is uh, 
uh, kind of almost disencouraging to to continue keep mm-hmm. pushing because it's it's sometimes very difficult to find support and uh, I know even mm-hmm. sometimes some students can't find that kind of support in their actual like teacher so it's really refreshing mm-hmm. to hear like those nice stories that uh, um, <laughs> well, positive things are overcoming yeah. <laughs> yeah I you know. I, I I can't say like when I, I have had teachers that were um not the nicest people <laughs> but the th- but the thing is you don't have to stay there. If a teacher tells you negative things about yourself or tries to um give you bad feelings about the dance or the community, please move on because there's there are a lot of great teachers out there. And if there, if in your town there isn't, if um I for instance had a, a teacher who um, I valued a lot and did a lot for me, but she was, uh, turned out she was an alcoholic, which explained so many of the problems I had with her, you know, or all of us, but she was a genius, but she did have a drinking problem. And, you know, I, I, it took me a long time to realize that was happening, but, um, you know, I was strong enough within myself that I, I went to other teachers also. And so you have to be, a strong woman to take classes and to perform. You have to develop some inner confidence and trust your, your feelings that if there's a negative thing happening in the, in, in your class or on stage or backstage or in the workshops, change it. Don't even talk about it. Just move and go to somebody else because there's more nice people out there than there are negatives for sure. But you have to be a strong person within yourself know who you are and move forward i i do see what you're saying about um i see on, on facebook people talking about the negativity within within the dancers but you don't have to feed it there you don't have to focus on it because it's it's always going to be there there's, like i said there's always going to be somebody cuter better more aggressive whatever than you but you don't have to dwell on that it's you know it's a a short life, you might as well move forward and, 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 and remember why you got into it in the first place, for the joy of dancing, you know, for the joy of, of movement and not, not get distracted by internal quibbling. <laughs> so in the overall scheme of things, you know, I, I travel and people say, oh, but you don't understand. In my city, it's very conservative. And, you know, it's different here. And I'm thinking, your city is like every other city I visited. It's not unusual for people to be conservative or not want to buy tickets or um, be uh, competitive with each other. But you just have to figure that, that out as part of being in business. In, everybody in business has competition. Everybody, whatever the business is, whether it's running a restaurant or running a dance studio. So figure it out and move forward. <laughs> Easy for me to say, of course. <laughs> no, but that's a, that's a great uh, great tip, and uh, I just uh, caught a couple of uh, like phrases that really stuck on my mind. Like, if you stop feeding negativity, uh, then maybe it actually will at least minimize or even maybe disappear. And one of the ways to stop feeding it is to stop focusing, even how hard it mm-hmm. may sound to the person exactly. who maybe experience exactly. it right now. But the more you focus, the more you give it. Uh, uh, value and give it energy mm-hmm. <laughs> and then give it some meaning that Thanks. it will start growing start growing even more you know exactly and um the other thing is to sort of nip it in the bud and then if something negative happens you hear that somebody says something bad about you 
And I, I have been there. We all have been there. And what, what I would suggest is instead of listening to the stories about what, what they said, just call that dancer and say, let's go have lunch and, you know, and be friendly and talk about it and then bring it up during lunch. Like, did you say this about me? You know? <laughs> and if so, why? Or can you? And usually, you know, usually you can take care of it right there and you, you pay for the lunch and you have a good hug and it, it's passed. But, you know, this he said, she said kind of stuff can drive you crazy and um, and make for negative, long, long negative paths in your dance. It's like, just go and ask and find out if it's true. And if it, if you said, I, you know, somebody once told me she didn't speak to me for 10 years because of something I said in class. And I said, really? What did I say? I don't even know what she was talking about. And she said that I had said in class that I did not like blondes. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, I'm sure I was joking or saying something stupid, but I've never thought about not liking blondes or brunettes. I mean, it was just the weirdest thing. I started laughing. I just thought, that sounds crazy. <laughs> but it took her 10 years to tell me that, and we got it out and, and took care of it. But, yeah, you know, just talk about it and, and let it go. And um, I, I truly believe that most dancers, all dancers, even if they make a mistake, it was a mistake and they didn't mean to be mean about it. Very few people are mean or vicious. We all make mistakes and we all say the wrong thing at the wrong time here and there. So, um, but I, I think people's intentions are not bad. They're just maybe clumsy. And so you, you put that into your, your feelings and you give them the benefit of a doubt, you know, and say, okay, you know, she, I, I heard that she said that, but, or that she she scheduled an event on the same day as mine. Maybe I should go knock on her door and we should just talk about it. And, you know, or if we were lawyers or businessmen, we'd go to the country club and have a martini and talk about it. <laughs> it's, like, mm-hmm. it's still business, you know, no, so just face it and move forward with it. Mm-hmm. That's also true. Mm-hmm. Uh Well, uh, there is so many topics and questions on my mind right now because you had such <laughs> a like long and and full like rich and varied uh, career. But one of the things that I really want to talk about because this not many dancers do this kind of uh, work and project is uh, uh, actually your documentaries, and you have a couple, mm-hmm. and I know there is one also coming up soon <laughs> too. But mm-hmm. um, you already have documentaries American. American uh, ballad dance uh, legends. Uh, mm-hmm. You have a Gypsy Fire documentary, and there is one mm-hmm. more American mm-hmm. ballad dance icons coming out. <laughs> Can you please Correct. tell about your very first documentary first? <laughs> oh, the Gypsy Fire one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I've been dancing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've been dancing forty-three years, and about gosh. 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I was a little bit bored with my dancing and thinking, okay, you know, how many ways can you do a figure eight and make it interesting? And so I was just starting to feel a little bit like what's next in my future. And, you know, 20 years ago, Egyptian dancing was very popular, but, um, and I could pass to be Egyptian or Middle Eastern, but I didn't want to do that. I was trying to follow my own theory about how to be the most Amaya Amaya can be. You know, how can I be special and unique? Because that's really, to me, what makes you um, 
commercial and um, makes you special on, on the stage of a lot of other dancers is you have to develop something special. And so I decided to go ahead and um, investigate my own uh, background, my own cultural background, which is, you know, I'm, I'm half Spanish, half Indian, half Central American Indian and raised in America. And so I was raised with a lot of Latin, salsa, mariachi, um, Mexican music. And, and so I decided to start dancing a little bit more of that and add some of that flavor to my, my dance. And so I think I was one of the first people to do fusion of flamenco Spanish styling dancing with Arabic. And this was like 1990. Um, and so I asked a friend of mine, an Egyptian composer, Ibrahim El Samahi, if he would write a song for me that had, um, you know, Latin music and um, trumpets and Middle Eastern uh, instrumentation. And he wrote Amaya Genya, which is a wordplay on Amaya and Malagenya, which is a city, Malaga is a city in Spain. And so he made a wordplay of Mal Amaya Genya and wrote the song, which is now my signature song. He, it took him three years <laughs> and he played it on the, over the phone and it was exactly the song I was looking for. I never changed a note. I said, it's exactly what I want. It sounds like a bullfighting song and I come out all powerful and very lifted. And um, it, it really helped put like a, a, a big uh, emphasis in my dance to have this new song and then start creating uh, a different posture because in, um, and I call it gypsy Hitano posture, is that you are very lifted in, in, the, um, in the chest and the arms and the elbows. So you're very elegant in this dance, which, um, you know, is, is what flamenco is all about. But then I added the flavor and the femininity of Arabic. So um, it took off. I started dancing it and the music became very popular. And um, I decided to go to Spain and, and visit with the gypsies there in person, kind of. So I did, and I filmed it, and I made a, um, a movie out of it, which is what Gypsy Fire is about. So it gives you the idea of like understanding where the dance, the fusion dance, came from. And if you look at Spanish dance, the big umbrella of Spanish dance, you know, under flamenco, you have sevillanas, and you have solerias, and um, I mean, bulerias, and then you have it way, way in the far corner something called Zambra, Z-A-M-B-R-A. Mm. And this is the most Arabic kind of Spanish dancer is. If you look at the, um, um, the map, you see that Northern Africa and Southern Spain touch through the Rock of Gibraltar. There was 800 years of melding of Muslim, Moorish, Spanish gypsy people. And so if you go to Southern Spain today, you will see a lot of Arabic um, influence in the, in the architecture, in the music, in the street signs even. And so it's nothing I made up. It's already been done. It's been done for years and years and years, hundreds of years, people dancing Arabic and Spanish at, you know, in their same dance. So um, I just tapped into that. And now it's become very popular and I'm really happy for that because you know, I love that combination. I love the the strong, powerful Spanish um, 
heartfelt gypsy look. And then I also like the feminine and the, the sweetness and the uh, emphasis of that whole Arabic oriental look. It makes for a great performance on stage. Mm. It's such an interesting uh, comparison because we are all to- uh, talking about this uh, uh, or fusion, can it exist, can it not, like flamenco Arabic or any other Arabic, but specifically about talking about flamenco Arabic, we call it fusion mm-hmm. today, and there is a lot of discussions Is if the dance has to be, <laughs> a specific Arabic dance has to stay the pure, or uh, it can be mixed and fused and be creative in a show style, mm-hmm. and at the same time here we are talking about Zambra dance, which is basically a regional dance so mm-hmm. i kind of can mm-hmm. call it folklore dance in a way but then it's by its exactly. nature it's a mixture it it is a fusion mm-hmm. by its nature i guess <laughs> right yeah yeah it's, it's interesting um this whole fusion some people create something totally um you know out of the clear blue sky like uh american tribal style ats is totally an American thing and it has nothing to do with history this or history that but it's, it's you know it's worldwide now but you know the bottom line to all of this is that it's art you know folkloric Middle Eastern dance oriental it is art and it's going to evolve it's going to move sometimes it'll change into ways we don't you know I don't like it but that doesn't mean I can I want it to stop changing you know the stuff that we're doing today is not what was being done in the 1960s when you know, we start seeing this fad of belly dance in America. So it's it changes, and I think for the most part, it changes for the better. Our music has become more worldwide. You know, it's not, you know, when I was getting to be um, uh, oh, known in the dance business, or when I first started, actually, there were only a few record albums of this kind of belly dance music. So we all were dancing all over the place to the same songs over and over. And now we have such, you know, such a, a great selection of, of music, Middle, gorgeous Middle Eastern music to choose from. And I think new dancers today have no idea how lucky they are. But my pet peeve about fusion is people that start out doing fusion that do not know the basics and the history of the dance, which is, you know, why I, I'm doing the documentaries I'm doing. You know, we do not acknowledge our history enough. And so we go, oh, you know, yeah, it's from the Middle East. And so now I'm going to dance to, you know, um, the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> you know, people go, they jump into fusion too quickly. I, I don't mind seeing a great fusion performance by a dancer that knows um, what the box is and then dances outside the box. Uh, you can't dance outside the box and do fusion if you don't know the, uh, the basics and the history behind of the whole thing. And that's my pet peeve, that people do it too quickly and start doing um, avant-garde moves to avant-garde music and call it belly dance. And, and it's not. It's too far out. It's like um, maybe you threw in uh, an undulation, but that was about all that was Middle Eastern about it. And, you know, I think they should just give it a different name and then it would be it would be fine. But don't call it belly dance fusion if you don't really even know what belly dance is. 
Yeah, that's true. Well, talking about uh, knowing your uh, history and also doing research, uh, I know that uh, your other documentaries were more focused on that and specifically about uh, Belladin's uh, history in uh, in America and USA. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell uh, what inspired you and what pushed you to create your uh, <laughs> next documentary, The Legends? <laughs> You are so, that's a great question, and it has a funny answer. Oh. The answer is, um, you know, I've been dancing a long time. I have boxes and boxes of videos of a whole bunch of people, myself including, of course. And my friend, Morocco, from New York City, was saying that she was going to write a book about the history of dance in America. And, um, and she was going to do this book, and she was going to do this book, and then it didn't happen. And I thought, well, you know, I, should, I, I don't think I can write a book, but I should do a video. Or no, I said somebody should do a video of the of the history of dance in America because personally, I feel that American um, dancers have take has taken this dance from the Middle East and made it worldwide. You know, the the history of the path of this dance is that it went from, you know, Cairo, Egypt, to now it's in Tasmania, and now it's in China, and now it's in you know Japan. It's everywhere. And it was American dancers that did it. American dancers that went to Europe, like Bert Belladine, and start teaching workshops to German ladies in in Europe um, many years ago, and started the whole trend of seminars and workshops over there. Um, so, so I was seeing the whole path. I'm, I have my foot in two worlds, in in the Bert Belladine era, in the you know, in Jamila Salampour era, and then also the more modern. Um, New, I was, you know, a newbie, and then I became sort of in the middle, seeing the new people come on board and the, you know, the vintage legend, legendary people starting to pass away. And I thought, if if somebody doesn't do this soon, all this history is going to be lost of what America did, not what the Egyptian dancers did. You know, Sohersaki, Nagafuad, we have videos of them, and we know about their lives, but we don't know about the next level of of um you know of the path the, the you know the national the international path of this dance which is strongly to do with um people the dancers from america the ibrahim farah and bird and jamila those are like our our now our grandparents kind of you know so finally one day it hit me nobody's going to do it and the only person to do it is me because of who i am and where i am in the middle I have all of this history, but I also see what's coming in the future. And the dancers don't know who the people are. I mean, Bobby Farah died, and three years later, my students didn't know who he was. And there was nothing online at that time to point to say, you know, he was, uh, you know, a big name in New York City. He had a great magazine and incredible choreographer. Nothing to back up what I was saying. So I decided to do it myself, which... Oh, like like everybody says, I had no idea what I was getting into. It was huge. You know, it was a lot of work, a lot of work. And that was 10 years ago. And after I did that one, I said, I'll never do it again. And of course, I did. <laughs> but um, I'm glad I did. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it. And I thought the second one, I, if I ever do another one, I'm going to make it a little bit different. And so here I am doing another one and it is a little bit different but it's still the same theory in my in my book is that i want to honor the people and give credit um you know um 
video uh, credence and credit to the fact of what they have done for our dance form because I don't want them to be forgotten, myself including. You know, it's like uh, you put all this time in, into making this dance more of a mainstream and a well-known around the world, and I, I don't want the names to be forgotten. And so I want the, all the dance studios to to buy this video and show it to their students, these videos, and say, this is the background to, some of the background to where your dance came from, and so now you'll know where maybe it's going to go. I've, I've had students that say, wow, look at this ruffled skirt. I, You know, it's the latest thing in belly dance costuming, and I, I, I bought ruffled skirts for my whole troupe because it's new and outrageous, and I'm thinking, my goodness, that was done you know, in Hawaii 30 years ago, we all had ruffled skirts. I mean, people don't know that they don't know. They think that they invented something when it's already been done. So hopefully this will help fill in some gaps, the, the two videos. How is your uh, second uh, documentary, uh, the new one, I mean, the um, American mm -hmm. Balladance Icons, how is it different from <clears throat> the uh, documentary, The Legends? Mm -hmm. um, the Icons... Uh, DVD. Uh, for one thing, it's longer. This is two hours and 40 minutes. It's a little bit more in-depth than The Legends, um, but this one is edgier. It's got, it talks more about challenges. It doesn't just talk about the glamorous part of belly dancing and being on stage and accomplishing, you know, awards. It's, and it, it gives a little bit more background to what it took for that dancer to be become what she became or um in this one there's there's no um male dancers by the way but um there were like I, I think there were like three or four in the um in the first one in the legends video this one by, by by chance i don't have any male dancers um but the point being in this one these women yes they went through a lot to get to where they are and where they were And I, I emphasize that part. Like uh, Mashuka, a dancer from uh, California who's been dancing probably 40 years, you know, her family were uh, was part of the Japanese internment camps in America, which is very interesting political thing to, to know about in, in light of today's world, our politics. So I covered that because I wanted people to know what she had to go through, what her family went through and how that culture influenced her as to when she decided to become a belly dancer. You know, a good Japanese girl doesn't do that. So we covered that. Um, so the stories are a little bit more um, more about the challenges. Um, and like I said, just a little edgier than the legends was. Hmm. What was the most uh, surprising or unexpected story uh, for you Uh, maybe you discovered something while working on this documentary that uh, really stuck on your mind and impressed you. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, it was several things, but what I uh, realized um, as I as I listened to everybody's story and wrote up the biographies and, and put the images together, how many women that took the path of becoming a professional dancer um, through health reasons or um, just personal reasons, decided not to have children. Um, and that was very interesting to me. I never had thought about or had seen the pattern 
that a lot of women um, that become professional dancers travel the world either um, just on purpose decide or find out one day that they ran out of time to have babies and children. And most of them, I mean, I think all of them that I talked to were fine about it because it was a conscious decision, except a few that um, couldn't have children because of health reasons. But that one was uh, an interesting uh, trend or uh, storyline that I hadn't even thought about. That uh, I know I personally had one child. Um, I don't see how women could have many, many children and be be a professional dancer. It's just it's the one you know. This both of them are too time consuming for one human being to do. <laughs> but that that was an interesting um, storyline that I hadn't thought about before. Um, and I think. The other trend and problem that most dancers have and maybe still have, maybe not as as firmly, but, you know, having families that don't understand and don't cooperate and don't support what you're deciding to do because they don't understand the the direction of your dance. They just know it as uh, something sexy that they saw on TV and, you know, why would my daughter want to do something like that? Because they don't understand that it's much more than the commercial side. So it's hard to get your conservative family members to come on board when you all of a sudden show up with finger symbols as a family reunion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's a, a universal and time, uh, a timeless uh, issue that uh, even today it, it's, it's a struggle mm-hmm. for, <laughs> for many people yeah. who want to, to, under- to explain. Because when, when I first got into dance, the very first class I ever took, I remember being, um, Oh, embarrassed and not happy about it personally because it went against my politics. I, you know, I loved this dance, but I, I was a strong feminist and I couldn't figure out how I was going to justify doing this, this sexy dance that, um, that I wanted to, to perform. I wanted to perform this dance. But at that time, I didn't know the whole, the whole story about the dance. I didn't know the history and that it was much more than the Hollywood um, you know, the Hollywood picture that was painted for us. So I was very happy to find that out, that there was much more in-depth to it. Because when I first got into it, it was, I just wanted to dance because I just loved the music. The music turned me on. And, if, you know, if somebody wanted to watch me, fine, but it didn't matter. I just wanted to dance. But later, once I started getting on stage, it was really difficult for me to justify my politics. But I figured it out, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How did your uh, shooting process uh, looked like? Uh, I'm very curious about actually the process of creating a documentary like that. Mm-hmm. It's not just shooting, you know, a creative video somewhere or like a mm-hmm. one interview. It, it's probably like how when you realize that you want to put this uh, documentary together, how actually mm-hmm. did you even start approaching it? <laughs> sure. Um that's a, that's a also a very good question because I wondered the same thing. But the formula turned out to be, uh, I contacted the dancer. I said, send me your archival material, photographs, magazine covers, videos, whatever you have, and send me um, your story. You write it out and send it to me. Which um, after the dancer said, oh, what a great honor. Then she realized, <laughs> wow, this is going to be a lot of work. And it was for me to ask them to do that was a lot of work. But they did it, and they finally got the stuff to me. And then I had a, an incredible editor. I couldn't do this project without Rachel Rogers, who worked with me second by second on every piece 
you know, we looked at TV screens forever to get all of this put together. But what would they would send me their life story, and then I would rewrite it. Because a lot of dancers, you know, we, we're used to turning in stories about ourselves that are more like a book report or a resume. And I needed to make the story more human than that. You know, talk about the chicken factory or talk about the Japanese internment camp or talk about, you know, the uh, kidney disease or the divorce. I wanted to talk about that, not just about all the awards that you got traveling around the world. So I rewrote their stories. I okayed it. And then the hard part was to put the graphics, the pictures, the videos to line up with the text. So I did a voiceover. I read the biography, uh, you know, into a microphone, and then my editor would put the images behind it. What was difficult was that if the dancer said, I was uh, a majorette in high school, we had to have a majorette picture on the screen to show that. So that's where it became um sort of tough, you know, sometimes to, because we don't have pictures to back up what we say all the time or a video or a graphic, but we figured it out. But yeah, it took, it took three times longer than I thought it would take. I thought this project would take a year. It took three years to do, but yeah. Um, and then we did ask uh, the dancers if they wanted to, to do a current video of themselves talking into the camera about their challenges. And some of them did do it. Mashuka, for instance, talks to us about uh, when she found out she had cancer and how she found out. And so we added that as at the end of her segment. Um, So again, back to, you know, it's not all a smooth ride to become a dancer. We wanted people to know that there was also another side to the story. And that's sort of how it came together. It was a compilation mostly of archival material. Mm, see, it took three years to do to the movie. That's that's quite a project. And uh, it's uh, is it already <laughs> available? Is it about to be available? <laughs> it's going to be shipped out next week, February fourth. So I'm I'm waiting to see. It. I'm not doing anything until I see the hard copy in my hands. You know, it's like it's it's at the duplicators right now. And uh, we are starting just now to schedule premieres around the country. I, um, I'll be in San Antonio, February 23, with uh, Karen Barbie, who's one of the icons. And we're going to do a release party there with uh, live Arabic music. And it's going to be, you know, champagne toasting. It's real exciting. Um, I am doing a premiere here March 22nd. Uh, at the Highland Theater in Albuquerque, and we're going to uh, showcase the DVD and um, also do a champagne toasting, live music, uh, red carpet kind of thing. So it's just starting to, you know, each icon will have the option of doing her own premiere in her own city. I think Tomlin Delal, who's featured, is doing something in New Orleans, um, maybe April, I think she said, but she's waiting to hear that I actually have the hard copy in hand. <laughs> mm. um, so then it'll go on Facebook. It'll be on my website. Um, uh, you know, we'll do the whole social media thing. Hopefully, hoping to have it, um, the possibility of people to buy it online streaming and also through USB hard drives. 
Mm, that's amazing. I will definitely also include links to the show notes so for everyone uh, to follow and keep an eye. And uh, it sounds like there mm-hmm. will be a bunch of belly dance fun and parties all over America <laughs> soon. <laughs> <laughs> Always looking for an excuse to have a party. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so probably in the next couple of days, it will be up on my website for sure. You know, I'm working on that. But um, like I said, right now it's the calm before the storm, I hope. <laughs> of course, there's nothing worse than throwing a, a big uh, DVD uh, um, together, a documentary, and having nobody interested. But I, I have a feeling that um, there's going to be a lot of interest just because it's, it's different. And um, again, it's something that's going to last forever. It's not about a new choreography. It's really about something archival that needs to be said and done about who we have in America that is making things, has many things happen. You know, unionized dance and um, created different dance vocabulary. I mean, it just goes on and on. And I'm so proud of our American dancers because we are innovative and we are, um, you know, just a creative country, period. And most of everything we've done has been pretty fabulous. Well, uh, that's definitely a lot of interest and like contributions and additions. And uh, it's very, those kind of projects, I kind of feel they always uh, add value that we don't, may not even understand right now, but it kind of documentation Mm -hmm. for even future generations and uh, just acknowledging Mm -hmm. what the paths are. like we created and came as a dance community and how different it is also in uh, uh, different countries because everyone will have their own uh, own story. By the exactly. way, I'm mm-hmm. uh, also uh, just came on my mind uh, another interesting question. Since you're traveling a lot too and you traveled a lot throughout your career and you saw ballet dance in different uh, uh, places, different countries, talk to many different people. What kind of you feel that is, um, I don't know, like uh, just different? It's something that will uh, talk specifically about ballet dance development in uh, in USA, in America. Anything that comes on hmm. your mind that it, it's kind of you feel, because every country will have different mentality even and different like mm-hmm, history mm-hmm. of how this sure, dance evolves. Sure. So not even talking about right now, but throughout the history that you kind of feel like that could happen only there just because of an environment that it's Got probably it. different oh, from Europe. Europe has very... Yes, yes, uh-huh. yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. I have an exact answer. Ah. <laughs> I thought, what is she asking me? I know what you're saying. Um, you know, I, when I, I traveled, um, to, to Germany a lot in the eighties and nineties, a lot, like three times a year for 15 years and taught a lot of workshops. And that's when I realized how American I was. <laughs> and that is our, our movements in America, our dance movements, our, our Middle Eastern dance movements are large because our country is large. You know, we have studios with high ceilings. We have, we have fairs and we have uh, uh, outdoor parks and we have big rooms. And as a result, I would show up in Germany with a silk veil that was four yards long and say, we're going to flip this veil around and show you, you know, we're going to put air in this veil. And, and the Germans were like, there's no room because where they dance and where they live, it's very small. 
you know, the ceilings are lower, the restaurants are smaller, they're tighter packed, their personal space is smaller than our personal space. Um, if I'd go to to Spain or to France or anywhere in Europe, people would stand close to me, closer than I was comfortable because they're used to that, that, that bubble that we all have is smaller for them. We Americans, we just fling our arms out to the side and over our head and you know, we, we're just used to bigger steps and bigger moves. And other countries, Japan, for instance, or China, I was in China four years ago, their movements are tinier. You know, they're, that reflects to me their, their culture. They're, um, they don't have like a big hip uh, twist. They have a small hip twist. And they, they are, um, the, the Chinese dancers were not so much about solos, but about group numbers and they are more about choreography and the whole technical aspect of it. Where we Americans, I think, tend to emphasize more about feeling and spirituality, interpretation of the music emotionally. They're much more technical and they're wonderfully technical, something we should learn more about (laughs) Mm. and emphasize more in America, but they they take it much more seriously. And we are in America more... um, Oh, uh, more into exploring not only the space, but the music, the song, the whole, um, the whole feeling of it all. Whereas when I was in China, they actually choreographed their eyeballs. You know, if I, if I would go to the right and my eyes would go to the right, all the students would turn their faces and their eyeballs to the right, which was really odd to me. I never thought about it, you know. My, I know I don't choreograph where I look. I just do it. And they were just copying me, which is a whole different way of, of the dance being interpreted by a culture. So, yeah, I think the biggest thing was the space that we have. That's why we can dance with three yards and four yard veils. And we can have 26 dancers on stage with swords on their head. We have the space to do it here. Whereas um, in other countries, maybe not. That's so interesting. I never thought about this from uh, this point of view. <laughs> well, I'm happy mm-hmm. I asked you. It was a tricky question on spot. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> well, talking also, you mentioned about uh, this tendency towards more like spirituality and exploration. I also know that you host a very interesting event uh, called a Wise oh. Woman Retreat. <laughs> wow, you know everything about me. It's amazing. Well, I'm skipping a lot of things <laughs> to talk about. I, I just jump in no from one here. to another. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, my wise woman retreat is um, something also <laughs> very different and, and dear to my heart. And that is, I used to um, have something called, I used to have festivals and and um, and with lots of teachers and t-shirt sales and and uh, it was just a four-day big event which drove me crazy into the ground <clears throat> it was really a lot of work and then one day I got tired of it and I stopped I think I did that for like uh, gosh I can't remember 12 years or something like that and then uh, I decided to do just the opposite because people were coming to my festivals thinking that since I was putting them on that I would be the teacher or the the person they would be hanging out with but I was doing all the behind the scenes work, so they never saw me anyway. So I decided it's just the exact opposite. The Wise Woman Retreat only allows 15 people, 15 people that want to come to New Mexico and just be 
with me. There are no other teachers. Well, there are a couple other teachers, like the warm-up teachers, the yoga teachers, etc. but I'm the primary. And um, I decided to make it uh, special in that I believe dancers need to get out of the dance studio and visit the cultures and see different things in order to add to their um, their dance, to make their dance more um, more unique and more them. You have to see the world. And so if they come to New Mexico, it, New Mexico, it's, to some people, is almost like a foreign country because we have the Native American culture, we have the Spanish culture, we have the Anglo culture. And so we mix it all up together and it's just an unusual place to come visit. It's not like Los Angeles or New York at all. So um, people come here, 15 people once a year, and um, and explore, do tours, and we have dance classes, and we have flamenco shows, and we have Hawaiian shows sometimes. We have uh, visits to ancient um, pueblos. So it's a combination of uh, cultural experiences, but it's been real successful, and for me, it's been um, really good for my own spirit to have dancers come in and we can just face-to-face talk instead of being, you know, totally stimulated by all these outside forces. We get, um, it's just a different experience. It's just more, um, more artistic, more spiritual. So I guess, uh, the name, uh, wise woman retreat comes as a contribute to you, to your own wisdom to finally cut down the organization stuff <laughs> and get to the core. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I tell you, it's that, that's, thank you for bringing that up too, because, um, the reason I did it was very calculated. And that is we, I, I was hearing a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm getting older, I'm over 45, and I don't know if I can dance anymore. And and here I was like 55 or 65. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? So as long as you're physically able, you should dance. And it, it's, <clears throat> I think what people get distracted is that once you get into dance, you think you have to be young and, and pretty to dance at the local restaurant, you know, Arabic restaurant. Because that's what you're you're hearing from the owner or the manager that you're you're too old or you're too fat or you're too this or too that, and the fact is none of that matters because that's just a small part of our business, the restaurant jobs. It's like um, there's something to be said for being an, a woman that has experiences and you have something to share emotionally on stage. You're not just a technical robot. We are much more than our our bodies. So. By by going to a wise woman retreat or or traveling to Europe or going to Africa or going to Morocco and seeing different ways of being, you get out of your own little box and go, oh, it doesn't matter that I have gray hair. Look at that dancer at that Pueblo with hair, gray hair that is so long that it's touching the dirt behind her as she dances in the sun, honoring the corn goddess for hours on end. So it's like it gives you a whole different way of looking at our dance other than that commercial side that we sometimes get distracted into. So in order to in, um, to extend my own career, I decided instead of trying to pretend that I'm young and, and um, you know, work, work on the whole wise woman branding. And that is, hey, we're wise women and we have something to share with you. And it created a market. 
basically I created my own market. Mm, that's wise. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> and uh, what are typically the dates so that this retreat uh, happens so that people can maybe I'll check their calendars right now to see and join next time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's usually um, the first weekend in August. The um, It go, usually runs around uh, August 4th, whatever that weekend falls, mm-hmm. because August 4th, It's a sacred Native American feast day. And I always take my group to, to that because it's so important for them to see dancing in a Pueblo by two to 3,000 people in costume. And so I always build my, my workshops and my whole retreat around the August 4th corn dances. Mm. Well, except for this year. <laughs> this is my first. I think I've been doing it 17, 16 years now. Mm-hmm. And this year it will be different. It's going to be, um, yeah, August 6th through the 10th. Mm-hmm. But uh, this year is unusual. Normally it runs around the August 4th event. Mm, I see. Well, anyway, sounds like an exciting event that uh, it's going beyond just a belly dance uh, uh, classes, uh, working on technique mm-hmm. or choreography. Mm-hmm. So, Um, very exciting, uh, excited for you and participants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it, it's, it's been fun because dance just keeps me creative. And I'm also, I really enjoy the business side of it and I actually enjoy the political side of it. I, I'm lucky. I like all aspects of it. I like being at my computer and I like talking to somebody from Ukraine. I like doing everything I do, which makes me not want to... Um, give anything up and there seems to be no reason to give anything up because what happens is something goes away. Let's say, Oh, restaurant jobs dry up. Well, then let's just go ahead and write a book or let's go ahead and, and have a different kind of retreat or, you know, it's all about being a creative artist in all different levels. It's not just about dancing a new step. Mm. Another great uh, advice from you. <laughs> I feel it today. Oh, you know why? Because I'm so wise. <laughs> ah, that's true. Uh, well, um, <laughs> I will make sure once again uh, to include all links uh, to your uh, website and social media so all dancers can oh, now not so only much. follow uh, news about documentary and all the upcoming party announcements, uh, but also mm-hmm. check the retreat and maybe join and explore their dance uh dense uh, uh, soul from a different uh, perspective for them. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, before I ask our uh, summary question, I also want to really uh, thank you for your time and joining us today in the podcast. And th- there are so many things that uh, you did in your Baladins career and that developed, contributed to the community and to the uh, culture and history of this uh, dance, uh, and not only mm-hmm. in America, but uh, worldwide. And uh, we just had today a little glimpse <laughs> on a couple <laughs> things. Uh, but anyway, thank you so much for taking time and uh, joining mm-hmm. us today and sharing your wisdom with us <laughs> and I always uh, before I let you go and continue on your day oh. <laughs> I always finish okay. every interview with uh, the same question that uh, became our traditional question of the podcast and the question oh. is what makes you fall in love with belly dance 
again and again. So you keep doing it for so many years. That's an easy answer. The music, the music, the music, the music. It's what started me on this path and what continues. When I hear a particular song, you know, I'm sitting here on my computer and I'm going to run across a new song or an old classic. Oops, well, I must get up and move around a little bit and start doing, you know, my my stretches, my music, my dance movement, my snake arms. It's always the music, much more so than the costuming or any other part of it. And that's it for today, guys. But before you go away, don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends. And if you post it on social media, please tag me and our guest because we love seeing who is listening to the podcast. Thanks for being with us and I'll see you next week. Same time, same place.